Welcome back to What to Gain for Your Brain with me, Kirsten Mortimer. Last time we talked, we learned about how ischemic injury in the brain is associated with inflammatory events, such as incoming circulation of immune cells as well as activation of endothelial cells, astrocytes, and microglia, and these immune cells all have vitamin D receptors. We also talked about how higher vitamin D levels result in lower chances of developing post-stroke pneumonia or depression. Before we talk to our guests today, I want to make sure we understand how differing serum levels of vitamin D may have implications on stroke risk as well as some of the drawbacks on these studies. Let's get into it. While vitamin D has been shown to decrease stroke risk, vitamin status can still be dynamic and can still result in complications throughout rehabilitation, which leads to increasing chances of readmission for subsequent stroke or death. Negative effects of low serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 can continue for at least up to two years regarding stroke recurrence and mortality. A study done in 2014 found that, in those younger than 75 years, there was an inverse relationship between 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 levels and one-year mortality rates. Additionally, measuring levels of serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 for 382 stroke patients, 16.5% died within one year, and these patients showed lower mean values of serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 levels at 12.92 nanograms per milliliter compared to stroke patients who did not die one year at 17.84 nanograms per milliliter. Survival at one year was much lower in patients with less than 10.28 nanograms per milliliter serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 and lower baseline levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 at admission, which was less than 10.28 nanograms per milliliter, was an accurate predictor of moderate to severe stroke compared to mild stroke. Similar conclusions were found in a study from 2013 to 2015 that included 387 patients with ischemic stroke in China. Lower levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 in stroke patients were independently associated with higher infarct volumes, and those with worse strokes measured by higher NIHSS scores had 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 deficient levels. The lowest quartile range of 25-hydroxy vitamin D3, which was less than 13.9 nanograms per milliliter, showed a 206% increase in risk for cardiovascular disease, or CVD, mortality. Even after adjustments for other cardiovascular risk factors, vitamin D deficiency was still a significant predictor of CVD or all-cause mortality, suggesting that the effects of low 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 are independent of involvement of vitamin D deficiency in other conditions, such as diabetes and arterial hypertension. However, this was an observational study and it cannot prove causality between 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 and fatal CVD events or all-cause mortality. Randomized controlled trials with larger sample sizes are needed to warrant causal and reversible relationships. In recent years, serum concentration of vitamin D has been found to be inversely related to risk of adverse cardiovascular events such as stroke. Despite there being promising evidence proving the significant inverse relationship between vitamin D and stroke risk, not all studies have found such conclusive evidence. Various results have shown that vitamin D only makes a minuscule difference, if any, in stroke or cardiovascular disease risk. Perhaps the most prominent example is the study of cancer and stroke among U.S. men 50 or older and women age 55 or older, called Vitamin D and Omega-3 Trial, also called VITAL. This is a nationwide, randomized, and placebo-controlled trial of daily vitamin D3 at 2,000 international units and omega-3 fatty acids at 1 gram in the prevention of cancer and stroke. Updated results did not find significant reduction in CVD endpoints with a hazard ratio of 0.97, 
although updated results do show a reduction in total cancer mortality at a hazard ratio of 0.83. Although these studies did not find significant relationships between vitamin D levels and risk of stroke, limitations and inconsistencies should be noted. Limitations for studies investigating this topic include having different follow-up periods and cutoff values for serum vitamin D levels, which can lead to differential outcomes and data analyses. Observational studies suggest that vitamin D exhibits protective factors against strokes, but limited interventional studies are available, and the existing ones have some methodological drawbacks. For example, some studies include the fact that CBD was not the focus of the study, and that the doses of vitamin D used were only equivalent to a daily multivitamin. There are also potential confounding factors and inconsistencies that are not recorded, such as differences in measuring cognitive function, serum parathyroid hormone, serum calcium concentrations, sun exposure levels, diet, and physical activity. Larger studies, such as VITAL, only tested one dose of vitamin D and one frequency of administration, as well as only including Caucasian and black participants. This limits the generalization of results to an entire population as well as does not address the dynamic status of serum vitamin D, where further data is needed for a more diverse population that includes different races, ethnicities, sexes, and frequencies of doses given. Given that there are many studies proving that higher serum vitamin D reduces stroke risk and the complications seen in rehabilitation, more interventional or randomized controlled trials with diverse populations that address the dynamic status of vitamin D are needed in order to fully understand this relationship. Given that a healthy lifestyle may prevent stroke in terms of decreasing smoking habits, sedentary behavior, and sugar intake, research has shown that vitamin supplementation can also help balance your diet and essential nutrients. For the past couple decades, vitamin supplementation has been investigated to treat the prevalence of non-communicable diseases, such as cardiovascular diseases, type 2 diabetes, and cancer, by maintaining the recommended micronutrient levels, especially in those who are deficient. The use of vitamin and mineral supplements among U.S. adults is common, with up to 40% of the population taking either vitamin C, E, D, B12, B6, calcium, zinc, or magnesium supplements. However, one of the biggest nutrients that the U.S. population falls short on is vitamin D. Specifically, 40% of the U.S. population has deficient 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels as of 2018. While the benefits for sufficiency in vitamin D are realized, the population as a whole is currently not meeting the standard. Once an individual decides that they want to take vitamin D supplements, determining how much can be difficult. First, some recommended intakes can be based on skeletal health outcomes but are actually insufficient for optimal functioning of the nervous system and the immune system. Additionally, research shows that stroke risk for middle-aged vitamin D deficiency in women is greater and more severe than it is for middle-aged men as well as a higher risk existing for pregnant women. Having designated ranges of recommended vitamin D supplementation depending on age, gender, and pregnancy can make finding the right amount difficult. For those who are already vitamin D deficient, it is recommended that they take 50,000 international units or 1,250 micrograms of vitamin D once a week or more for six to eight weeks, followed by 800 to 1,000 international units or 20 to 25 micrograms daily. However, for the general population, these numbers range from 400 to 1,000 international units a day for kids, 1,000 to 2,000 international units a day for adults, and anywhere from 600 to 2,000 international units a day for pregnant women to maintain adequate levels of vitamin D, which is greater than 30 nanograms per milliliter. Once your serum vitamin D is above 20 nanograms per milliliter for every 100 international units consumed, 
serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 increases by 0.6 to 1 nanograms per milliliter. Although people obtain much of their recommended vitamin D through exposure to the sun, this can vary depending on different circumstances, such as age, gender, pregnancy, or latitude. Since vitamin D synthesis requires adequate levels of sunlight exposure, which is more difficult to achieve above and below 33 degrees latitude during winter months, the greatest deficiencies may be seen in the Middle East, Asia, or Northern Europe. Vitamin D sufficiency is commonly defined as values greater than 30 nanograms per milliliter, vitamin D insufficiency as 20 to 29.9 nanograms per milliliter, and vitamin D deficiency as less than 20 nanograms per milliliter. However, a very recent study has found that black participants with greater than 40 nanograms per milliliter showed health benefits as less likely to test positive for COVID-19, indicating that the 30 nanogram per milliliter cutoff may be too low for proper immune function. Additionally, in a meta-analysis of over 20 cohort studies done in 2020, they found that a reduction of stroke of about 20% occurred when 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 levels were only about 20 nanograms per milliliter or vitamin D intake was about 12 micrograms a day. It has also been suggested that risk of stroke increases with lower serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D3, but that a plateau might exist around 25 nanograms per milliliter, above which the risks do not change significantly. It is also difficult to overdose on vitamin D, only becoming dangerous if serum levels exceed 60 nanograms per milliliter. It is evident that there are many factors that contribute to serum vitamin D levels for an individual, and a further understanding of these factors can aid in treating those who are deficient and at an increased risk for stroke. Now, I want to introduce Dr. Paul Zak. Dr. Zach is the Chief Immersion Officer and Founder of Immersion, a neuroscience platform that turns signals from the peripheral nervous system and the brain into algorithms to accurately predict individual decisions and market outcomes. Additionally, he is the Founding Director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies and the Professor of Economics, Psychology, and Management at Claremont Graduate University in Claremont, California. He has obtained degrees in mathematics and economics from San Diego State University, a PhD in economics from University of Pennsylvania, and postdoctoral training in neuroimaging from Harvard University. Through 20 years of peer-reviewed research with funding from the CIA and the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, on the role that oxytocin has on human behavior, Dr. Zach's company is an academic lab at Claremont Graduate University constantly work towards finding the key driving factor behind human happiness, connection, and teamwork. In 2012, he wrote The Moral Molecule, The Source of Love and Prosperity, where he recalls finding the key driver of trust, love, and morality in humanity, also known as oxytocin. In 2017, he published a book called Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies, which uses neuroscience to teach and encourage companies to create a more trusting, positive, and productive atmosphere. His TV and media appearances include CNN, Fox Business, The Dr. Phil Show, Good Morning America, The Bachelorette, ABC World News Tonight, and a TED Talk in 2011 with over a million views. I wanted to have him on my podcast because his research investigating neurochemicals has brought him from the Pentagon to Fortune 50 boardrooms to rainforests in Papua New Guinea. I was also lucky enough to intern with Immersion for the spring 2019 semester and the summer of 2020. When I returned for work with them over a year later, they had only increased in size, clients, and innovation. I have the utmost respect for Dr. Zach and knew he would be helpful in discussing all things neuroscience with me.
He welcomed me into the Immersion family years ago and makes it clear that I'm still always welcome there. His drive to bring neuroscience out of the lab and a mission towards ecological validity and questioning the reliability of self-report is admirable, and I am excited to continue following the great things that Immersion is doing. But before getting into it, I just wanted to quickly clear something up. Dr. Zach talks about this thing called Immersion, which I want to make sure people understand first. This is referring to a platform that came about after millions of dollars and decades of research to investigate how the hormone oxytocin functions in social connection and trust. The platform called Immersion involves the wearing of either a band or getting the Immersion app on your smartwatch to measure your deep state of engagement with an experience. The key algorithm is this, attention plus emotional resonance equals immersion. As attention increases, activity in the brain's prefrontal cortex causes an increase in sympathetic activity. Emotional resonance is associated with the brain synthesis of the neurochemical oxytocin, which increases activity of the vagus nerve, which is the longest nerve coming from the head that innervates the heart and gut. The system measures activity in the nerves that control the heart, and this activity is correlated with signals from the brain, which allows them to quantify the neurologic responses to any kind of experience. The algorithms convert neural signals into predictors of decisions and actions, not just intentions or feelings. Moral of the story is that it's not simply biometrics, which can be raw and confusing data. This technology uses a light wave that penetrates the skin to observe changes in blood flow. From that, sensors can derive measures like heart rate and vagus nerve activity via heart rate variability. With just an app on your smartwatch and Wi-Fi or cellular data, you can measure your own immersion for any experience. Check out getimmersion.com for more info, but without further ado, let's talk with Dr. Zach. Tell me about your background, just growing up in education and what got you interested in neuroscience? Uh, I'm a weirdo. Um, so I have kind of really weird uh, background. So undergraduate degrees in economics and mathematical biology, and then uh, PhD in economics and postgraduate training in neuroscience. And so I sort of combine these. Um, but because I'm a Martian, I don't really understand the humans. And I think running experiments where we measure brain activity is great. So I'm uh, I'm very skeptical of self-report just based on the way the brain works. If you ask me about my feelings, why should I have any you know, insight into my feelings? Uh, just like asking me about my liver, I have no insight, uh, even though it seems like I should. And, and if you ask someone a question, they'll give you an answer, but I just rather go to the source directly and measure what the brain's doing. So that's what I've done for the last 20 years or so. And in particular, I've been focused on uh, human social behaviors probably because of my own deficiencies. That's very interdisciplinary. It makes sense that you're kind of amongst the the seven C's and the Claremont Consortium, the math and neuro. And so I guess, so tell me how immersion works. Uh, yeah, immersion is a, uh, I think the first neuroscience as a service platform that allows anybody to measure what people's brains value, any place people are in real time. That's a mouthful. So it came out of research done at CGU um, with a lot of funding from DARPA and from other uh, agencies in the US government, in which we measured uh, many, many brain signals, hundreds of brain signals simultaneously to see if we could identify 
when people would take an action after an experience. And that experience might be communication, it might be a, a in-person experience, it might be um, music. Uh, and so we basically over many, many years and, and making lots of mistakes, um, identified signals in the brain that consistently tell us that this experience was so valuable to the brain that people will do something after it. Email your congressperson, buy a product, post on social media, remember information. So we've tested it lots of different ways. So um, the punchline there, I think, is that no one wants a crappy experience. I, I, I don't want to, uh, I just stayed at a hotel last night, put me next to a room with a crying baby that kept me up at night. That's a terrible experience. I'll never go back there, right? Just come on, spread people out. That's normal hotel stuff, right? So um, I don't want to have a crappy experience. I don't want to see a crappy movie. I don't want to have a, I don't know, crappy romantic partner. Um, so we just don't know, right? So, you know, if we, if we have a way to measure that, uh, I think it's really useful. So consistently 80% of movies lose money. So that just says that humans are able with their intuition to assess whether something is sufficiently valuable for people to, you know, put in their hard-earned money to go watch a movie. What would you say is your most surprising experience where you thought that it was going well or great, or you really liked it, and then your immersion kind of told you that you didn't? Oh, gosh, I've had so many. That's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. I've probably done, you know, a couple of thousand of demos. So my brain is turning to mush. Uh, can I, can I recast the question just a little bit? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think a, a interesting case of that is when we were demoing at a, a major movie studio and uh, this was a group of people and um, we showed up with some wearables and a computer and I picked out a movie trailer for one of their recent releases. And when people came in the room, you could tell that a bunch of people did not want to be there just based on their body language and their lack of friendliness. Like their boss made them show up. Um, so anyway, I said, look, I bought some, some wearables for you and uh, you know, we're gonna watch a movie trailer and we're gonna diagnose. As soon as it's over, we'll diagnose what, what works on it and what doesn't work. Like that seems like a way to demonstrate the technology to you. And this one unhappy guy in the room said, this ain't gonna work on me. I produced that trailer and I've seen a hundred versions of it. I am so sick of it. I can't stand it. So, okay, great. You got the wearable with the blue bands. That's great. That's a great test of the technology. So we showed these seven people in the room, the movie trailer, and we had uh, a single super fan in the room. And that was the guy who produced it oh so on self-report, right? He said, no, I'm sick of this thing, but that was his baby. He nurtured that little thing to life. And so that's to me the surprising conflict between self-report, what we think we should say or do and what our brains really do. And so that's just perfect to me. Mm -hmm. That's this perfect example of why you need to measure the brain directly and not, you know, ask people. I love that. That's a, that's a great example. I like um, science just kind of proving people wrong. I think that's that's always a fun thing. It's like mind reading, right? I mean, there's, there's, it's not exactly mind reading, but it's close. It's getting to the core uh, things that you really care about. Right. And even from a, you know, interpersonal perspective, which has been most of my you know, academic research, if I really knew what my wife cared about, I would give her more of that. But even now, 25 years later, I have no idea. Right. So mm -hmm. um, really, I'm clueless or, or my friends or whatever, you know, I mean, yeah. I think, you know, there's such a, 
uh, you know, the overarching, uh, you know, notion of immersion and even most of my research is to build technologies to help people live better lives. Mm. And to me, measurement's the core part of the science of that. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Um, in your research about the neurochemical oxytocin, you found how oxytocin affects human behavior. Um, can you speak a little to what influence it has on human behavior exactly? Yeah, so we developed the early 2000s, I guess, developed a, a protocol to measure the acute production of oxytocin uh, in humans uh, using uh, very rapid blood draws. Um, and so um, once we had this tool, we could ask a lot of questions. And we also developed a way to shoot the synthetic oxytocin into the brain via the nose. So we had a couple probes that we could start to identify uh, what this, this neurochemical does. Um, that was uh, like most neurochemicals was was uh, works as a, both a hormone and a, as a as a neuromodulator, uh, and so you know the hormone aspects of oxytocin were well known. What we showed was that by getting a reflection of what's happening in the brain in the blood, that oxytocin was essentially released whenever someone had a positive experience with another human, in person or actually on video. So it, um, I think of oxytocin as the biological basis for the golden rule. If you're nice to me, my brain makes oxytocin or releases oxytocin that reduces my physiologic stress, increases my sense of empathy or connection to you, and that motivates me to reciprocate. So you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. And there's an anti-oxytocin. If you're bad to me, I'll be bad to you. Uh, and that's driven by a couple of interesting neurochemicals, testosterone, epinephrine, um, and so um, I think, you know, it's really easy in the laboratory to study bad behaviors. Fear is easy to study, but studying good behavior actually is, is hard. And yet it's good behavior that makes the world go round mostly. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, so it's, um, it's, uh, it says that the person around me uh, is safe or um, appears trustworthy uh, or I'm, I'm comfortable being around them. Um, so I think what's really interesting from the previous questions is that, um, you know, we found that things like videos cause the brain to make oxytocin. So we don't differentiate, sorry, our brains don't differentiate between me seeing you in person, me seeing you on camera. Um, so this is why, why people cry in movies, presumably, mm -hmm. right? It's very immersive. Also good in a pandemic when it's mostly like FaceTiming people. Yeah. So it actually, the brain doesn't really seem to care what, what the medium is. Um, and you certainly can imagine VR and haptics, you know, enhancing all that. Mm -hmm. So so we, I think, I mean, uh, to finish that question, Oxytocin as an index of the degree of connection or attachment or empathy for the person I'm interacting with or the experience I'm having. So higher oxytocin for, um, I mean, you're perfectly nice, Kristen, but my kids come in here, I'm gonna have more oxytocin release, right? So, um, uh, you know, subject to all kinds of things. Right. So come in here and yell at me, that would not be nice. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I, I, it's an interesting neurochemical because it really tells us, there's two things, it, it, it is a, uh, neural substrate of what it means to be a social creature. So mm -hmm. we've shown across all different, not all, many different uh, uh, mammal species that indeed oxytocin works as this indexing of the degree of connection uh, within a species and even across species, which is real interesting. Human to animal, uh, one species of animal to another species of animal. Mm -hmm. And so really get a sense of, of uh, what it means to be a social creature. Again, not a, obviously nothing one-to-one -one mapping the brain, Oxytocin is working in a, you know, activates a much larger network in the brain. Um, but I think, you know, knowing that people are social creatures, knowing that, um, you know, these valuation responses for social 
um, activities um, have a have a uh, largely an emotional component. That is, oxytocin is active rarely impairs the brain associated with emotional responses. We sort of knew that, but now I have a, um, a tool that I can measure and manipulate. And I think that's where the, the value of this, this uh, research uh, really has had to the academic community, but also, as you know, uh, applied to psychiatry in particular and to neurologic patients. And, um, and so it's really surprisingly, really surprising to me, has had much larger impact than I originally thought. Right. Like it, it affects so many people on so many different levels. Like the science can, like you said, help with the, the kind of the trust in, in finance and, and really any job. What would you say is the most important part? Like why is studying uh, neurochemicals important? What's the, why do we look at things on a, on a micro level kind of? Um, yeah, I mean, I really like neurochemicals now because they're relatively easy to measure. There's lots of ways to measure them, but also they're very concrete. Um, so there's no fancy data analysis, right? If I design an experiment and oxytocin went up or down or testosterone went up or down, right? It's, everyone understands that. And to me, that's just a starting point to go back and ask about um, activity in areas of the brain or body that have receptors for these neurochemicals. Uh, and then I can look at those electrical signals. Uh, we can image people's brains and look for activity uh, where those receptors live. And so it's a, it's a great, um, kind of a clear gateway that you should continue or not continue a research program. So it's, and it's very concrete. Where if I'm doing fMRI, which we've done in my lab, you know, there's so much processing that goes on and the results tend to be quite fragile. Um, there's poor test retest reliability for functional MRI um, that I don't really know what I'm getting. But, but again, I can, I can run these, these experiments measuring neurochemicals over and over and over. They're really consistent. Um, you know, go take blood, it's a biohazard, you know, so right. if you urine, you could do it in the spinal fluid. There's other ways to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to just accept that it's, it's moderately invasive, but even from uh, describing this to the general public, you know, it's super easy to understand that here's the, here's, I showed you a movie clip and your ox, you know, average oxytocin went up 42%. Right. I can do that. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's no special processing. Yeah, everyone gets that, right? It's very straightforward. So. I think the, um, oh, the dogs are parking. I think the um, uh, yeah, applicability of this research uh, is comes out of the concreteness of it. Right. With regard to how many different like supplementation ranges is recommended out there for vitamin D, as someone who has researched neurochemicals for decades, what's the hardest part about searching and parsing through all of this, this literature to find consistent things? Yeah, I think, I think it's two levels. I think one is the um, you know, purity of the supplement you're taking, the different rates of which people metabolize it, um, you know, whether it accumulates in the body. Um, so I think, you know, mid-range is probably the right thing. Um, I, I don't even think the US um, DA, you know, requirements are that precise in my view. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, the vitamin supplementation is probably important for most people. Uh, certainly northern latitudes for sure. Um, but yeah, at what range? I'd have, I'd try to collect as much information as possible. I think it's very, um, it's very unclear.
Agreed. It's, it's tough. But yeah, there's so many different ranges that you find out there and there's so many things that can change it like sun exposure and like skin pigmentation and yeah, where you live and just uh, so many things. What, like if you're, if you're stuck when you're researching through these things and you can't find consistent things, or you find a bunch of differing things, like do you stick with one that you believe the most or kind of, how do you go about doing that? What's advice that you would have for me? Uh, good question. I am, um, I'm, and, you know, you know me pretty well. I'm kind of a pain in the ass person. So I basically hit the experts and ask them. So and the nice thing about having a like EDU email is people will talk to you more than maybe regular humans. Yeah, and so say, you know, your research said that this, I'm very interested in this. Um, you know, can you lead me to a paper or whatever? You know, can you support why you would be different than somebody else? Mm-hmm. And it's actually surprising that, you know, like when you invited me, most people actually want to talk about, you know, a lot of their life's work. So um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, it's really kind of digging in and asking questions and not, as you've suggested, not just accepting what's out there, but being a little more critical. Mm-hmm. I like that advice. Use the .edu email. I think yeah. I use that for mo- most of my emails. So that's good because I, did, I didn't use my Gmail. So that's good. Yeah, you're using um, it like- I'm a student, I'm a pre-med student, I'm interested in this. Most people are pretty cool about that, right? So. Right, like I'm just, yeah, I'm just a student. I don't know anything, like what was me? Right, that's right. <laughs> right, quite dumb. <laughs> so you built Immersion because you essentially wanted to open up neuroscience to everyone and get the testing out of the lab. What difficulties have you come across in, regarding, um, in regard to measuring and data collection outside of the lab? And why is it important that we do this? I know you kind of touched on this, but I'm gonna ask you again. Yeah. I think you know, the reason to do it is, um, you know, the show of art in science is ecological validity. Mm. Measure what people really do, not just sticking people in a lab and, and you know, assuming that happens and that stick lab thing actually happens in, in life. Um, and so I, I think that's the first. The second is, it's so nice to have other people think of ways to use this technology that I could not have thought of. And, and because, you know, it, it, neuroscience is expensive, you know, pre-immersion, you know, many uh, individuals and companies would interact with me and, and say, you know, we've always wondered about this thing. I'm like, oh, that's a great research idea. So a lot of the, you know, the, not a lot, but, you know, some subset of publications for my lab came just from those conversations where someone says, I'm really interested in this thing. And it's, you know, it's been bugging me for 10 years. Like, all right, tell me more. Mm. And so now we actually are kind of, it's almost like citizen scientists in a way, right? We, we've enabled anyone to start asking those questions um, and um, I think right now it's, you know, uh, focused on B2B, but eventually individuals can start asking those kinds of questions and uh, begin to curate their lives for greater satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the, I think the difficulty is getting people to understand what we're measuring and what we're not measuring. Um, and then the, the, uh, the second is um, that, you know, demonstrating that measuring what you really care about is worth paying for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, but we, since, since you own the company, um, we've had, we have now like entry level pricing and, you know, eventually it's going to be probably be a kind of a freemium model. We're actually give it away for give away a, a small slice of what mm-hmm. we do just to get people excited about it. And then if they want more, they can pay. So I think that's ultimately what's going to happen. So that means is that this can be every, hopefully can be everywhere. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we want to be the new steps. Steps to me is very 20th century, mm-hmm. you know, but measuring what you love, what yeah. could be more important than that? Holy moly. I, yeah, getting to do it really anywhere is kind of the ideal. Um, I remember when I was, when I was headed out, Patrick and I were trying to figure out like 
how could we apply this to kind of like everyday apps and like integrate this into like the everyday so what how would how do you how would you say you integrated it most into the everyday now yeah so i think you know what what we started doing was sort of episodic measurement a meeting a movie uh you know a commercial but um what daniel's working on with a lot of our partners is again having this be a native app on smartwatches so you buy the smartwatch it already has the immersion app on it mm. number one and then number two continuous measurement um for uh, um you know your entire life so that could be for group living people you may remember we have this um proof of value going for people in old folks homes so we know that social behaviors are uh, extraordinarily important to reduce morbidity and mortality but what so we're back to that social behaviors do you, do you really like playing bridge with uh ethel and mabel or you know would you rather you know go on a walk with uh you know your other neighbor edith i mean i don't know but if the individual knew that they could begin to you know uh tap this in so again this we're always back to measurement um so i do think you know the you know the continuous measurement um, allows us to do so many things that empower individuals to live their best lives mm -hmm. right so employees at work if if i really know what i like doing at work and my you know of the you know a couple of dozen things i do in a work day i'm just gonna put more effort into the stuff that i like doing it's just one of those human things mm -hmm. and so now it empowers that that employee to talk to their supervisor and say hey guess what we've been measuring me for the last month I dig doing accounting. It's just my thing. I didn't know. I mean, I just do it anyway. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm working with clients. Not so much. I, it's really tough for me. So either train me up on how to work with clients or just give me more accounting. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you begin to niche people into um, the areas that they're best at. And, um, you know, what could be better? It's even like life, right? You know, mm -hmm. you think you're going to like being a doctor, but you don't really know. I mean, you're going into something that, you know, you're kind of aware of, but, you mm -hmm. um, you know, it'd be great to get those indicators earlier on. Um, I don't know. I don't know how we get that for, for professions. You have to watch. I mean, it's nice to have evidence and proof, you know, and just be like, I think I like this. And like, my body's telling me this, but my brain, you know, didn't know until yeah. now. So I, I like are, that aspect. We are in talks about doing a dating TV show using our technology. So that's the other, wow. uh, you know, teenage daughters. And that's a hard, it's a very hard thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really hard issue. And I think particularly when you're younger, you know, everyone seems great at first. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, just, just again, that evaluation, um, mm. I think it's really weird that starting with oxytocin, we end up with having a technology that you measure with the brain values. That's, mm. that wasn't a goal. That wasn't a plan. It just, that's the way that research evolved. And so that's the beautiful thing about science, I think, is that you end up in places that you never never thought you would be just mm -hmm. by following the little threads that are right. What's needed at the time. And it didn't happen immediately, you know, it's been like you said, like 20 years of 20 years science ago. backed race, you know. So you might not, but do you what do you know about vitamin D? And then also do you take any supplements yourself? Um, I take, um, I don't know a lot about vitamin D other than, you know, the standard stuff. Um, uh, I do take vitamin E, which apparently I'm deficient in for some reason. Um, but did you get that measured by like, uh, you went to the doctor and they measured it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't know a lot about vitamin D other than, you know, necessary, but 
given my diet and then um, get some sunshine. I think I'm it's crazy. Yeah. I did a presentation about like what foods have vitamin D and I didn't realize how little amount of food had vitamin D in it. It was just like fatty fish and eggs and all the milk in the U S is fortified with vitamin D. So that's a really good source. But I was amazed. I look, I feel like looked at every food in the house and like literally nothing is vitamin D besides like fish, eggs, meats, and milk. Um, it's really, and some mushrooms. It was really interesting. Two two easy kind of fun ones. Um, just in general, what what is one piece of advice you'd give to a twenty two year old brain regarding brain health, or just general wisdom? Um, what could people be doing differently, basically? Uh, you know, I don't think I have any insight, deeper insight. Um, I think uh, you know, I used to think sleep was really optional, so I just I can get by with a little sleep. <laughs> But I'm really convinced by the research now uh, that sleep is really important. So mm-hmm. sleeping well, um, you know, eating healthy, exercising, you know, that's that's important. I think the value of social interactions, which is particularly important during COVID, uh, you know, the evidence is extraordinarily clear on how important this is. Um, and then lastly is, you know, I think the accumulating evidence that um, uh, even, you know, low level drug use, um, has, an, you know, a negative impact on the brain pot, um, but certainly, uh, you know, more, uh, uh, more dangerous drugs. So I think, you know, if you're over 30 and you smoke a little pot, it's probably not a big, big deal, but I think mm-hmm. under 30, it's actually it's damaging your brain. So mm-hmm. I'd be super careful. Especially with all the research on like the gut microbiome and how much that can affect people long-term and how much it's, you know, implicated in the immune system and, it's just the research coming out. It's crazy. It's really interesting. So interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't know, getting your gut biome, uh, you know, a genotype, would that be fascinating? Yeah, I really myself too. And I think, you know, being able to change that. I mean, I think now the link between gut biome and a psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia and depression, mm-hmm. really interesting. I think the causation is not at all clear. So easy. Last question, just kind of fun. If you had to describe the brain in three words, what would it be? Um, always at work. (laughs) I like that. I feel like I would put it into like three different adjectives, but I like that you put it into a a cohesive sentence. So I like that. That was good. Well, this Uh, was fun. Thanks for Yeah, those are all my questions. So thank you so much again for giving me your time. I know that you're super busy. And Kirsten, you know, if you ever need leisure recommendation or advice, but I'm always available to you. So you're in the family. You never leave the family happy to oh, chat anytime you need the me, trust so. that oxytocin <laughs> yeah gotta take care of the people that take care of you right so so great to see you thank you you too bye yeah. i really like the idea that dr zach woke up one day and thought i don't trust self-report and went and created a system that would just do it for you I think his research overall is very interesting and researching the biological basis for the golden rule where if you're nice to me, I'm nice to you sounds like such an intriguing and eye-opening line of work. It's also nice to know in a pandemic that oxytocin is being released when creating relationships with people no matter what medium is being used, including FaceTime. I'm excited to see more of what he does with the neural substrate that makes us social creatures. 
Once again, thank you so much for listening and tune back in for our last episode where we will talk to Elizabeth Velton, the Senior Director of Community Impact and Policy and the Government Relations Director for the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association about community outreach and policies to change health behaviors related to cardiovascular risks and vitamin D. Have a great rest of your morning, evening, or night.